And we've been going through, as a church, the Gospel of John. And right now we're in John chapter 6, about midway through. John 6 is a longer chapter. And just as a, a brief summary before we dive in about what we talked about last week, because last week really sets up this week for John chapter 6. And to set that stage, we'll look back. So by way of review, we saw that John chapter 6 began with Jesus feeding the 5,000. Very famous story, account. It's found in all four Gospels. should let us know that it's pretty important. And we saw that there are different ways to follow Jesus. Remember that? You could follow Jesus the way you follow someone on Facebook or the way you follow a certain sports team. You kind of look in and you check the front page. And then there's the way to really follow Jesus as a way of life, as a conviction, as your foundation of authority. There's some selfish ways to follow Jesus as well as a righteous way. We're challenged to have a heart for the lost last week, to have a heart and to have compassion for them. He looked over the crowds and he said they looked to him like sheep without a shepherd. We should have compassion for those lost people around us in our lives. We saw that Jesus was the source of our sustenance, not just the sustenance, not just the bread. He's the source of the bread. The way Moses gave the word that bread would appear every day for the Israelites, but Moses wasn't the source of it. He was the messenger. God was the source. And we learned last week Christ is the source of our sustenance. And that the object of our worship should be on, not on what he gives us, but on he who gives it to us. We don't focus on the gifts as our object of worship. We focus on the giver of the gifts. And last week, just as our Lord would, he was bred in his miraculous object lesson of feeding 5,000 people plus to set up this teaching today. You know how a, a Sunday school teacher will use an, use an object lesson. Maybe use a balloon, rub it on your hair, and show how static electricity works. Well, his object lesson was, let me feed a few thousand people here, and then I'll give you the teaching involved with that. So that set the stage for this particular message this week, that he is the bread of life. Amen. And so with that, let's pray for the service. Dear Heavenly Father, once again we come before you, always keeping you first in our worship and our lives. And I pray that you settle our minds and hearts, clear them up just for this next while here as we hear from you, your word. I pray that you're blessing upon the service. I pray that you open hearts, open minds, and let them be changed by what we all hear today, by your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Your word is life, and it's alive. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through dividing bone and marrow right to the heart of us. It should pierce us every time we hear it. So, Lord, let it be done today in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> and so, remember last week, he, Jesus fed the 5,000 people. And remember how it said in Matthew, there were 5,000 men not counting women and children. So, we could say, I mean, you could conceivably think it could have been 10,000 people or more there if each man brought his wife or maybe a few kids. So he fed them, and then he withdrew from the crowd because they wanted to make him king. They said, we like this guy. He gives us food. He does miracles. Let's make him king, king of Israel. But that's not why he came. They were following him for their reasons. What can I get out of it? And so in the evening after Jesus withdrew, his disciples went ahead of him across the sea. He said, I want you to go before me because the crowd's just going to keep coming. So they went off ahead of him into the sea. And the seas got rough. And they were about, it says in, in John last week, we heard about three or four miles away from shore. They weren't just by the shore. And they saw Jesus walking on the water as the waves were getting higher and the wind was getting stronger. They saw something out there and they realized it was Jesus. Another miracle. Showing us that we, Jesus has the seal of the Father upon him as the Son of God further strengthening the disciples' faith in him. In Matthew, it says, once he got in the boat, the disciples said, surely you are the Son of God. Thinking, what more do we need to see? We live with you. We see you doing these things. And so he met them, and they were transported to the other side of the sea. Well, the crowd eventually followed Jesus over there and found him on the western side of the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum. They found him there, and they spoke to him. And we're told in verse 59, next week we'll see that, that follow, this following interaction happened in a synagogue. So this was a time of teaching. And he's talking to these, these people who are intrigued by Jesus, not sure about him. 
and wanted to know more. And so we pick up this story here in verse 25 of John chapter 6. And we see the interaction between the crowd and Jesus. Verse 25 actually says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me, not because you saw signs. He said, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And here it's interesting. At times throughout the New Testament, how when Jesus is asked a question, he answers, but he doesn't answer that question. Or he'll ask a question. Or he'll make a point that gets really at the heart of the matter. You know how sometimes we ask someone a question and we really want to know the answer to the next question we're about to ask. We're setting them up. Well, Jesus goes right to the real question. In verse 25, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Because you've got to think. They were just on the other side of the sea. They saw the disciples leaving their boat, but not Jesus. They knew Jesus hadn't gone in the boat. And then they came the next day, and he was there already teaching. So just like any of us, we might think, how did you get here? They say, when did you get here? We thought we came pretty quick. How did you beat us here? But he answers like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So what does he do? They ask him when he came, and he responds telling them why they came. He says, I I hear your question, but what's really important is this thing. And it wasn't for the right reasons. And again, we see Jesus saying, truly, truly. Remember last week we said, when Jesus says, truly, truly, you can know in the back of your mind, oh, that's in John, or verily, verily. The, the Greek word is, we say amen, amen. It's amen, amen. It means so be it. So he's saying something. Listen up. This is important, what I'm about to say. Side note there. He tells them they're following him basically for a free lunch. He just comes out and says it. It's not because of all these miraculous things proving that I'm the Son of God. You just want a full tummy. And he knew they were craving and chasing after the gifts rather than the giver. It was plain to him. They weren't following him because their hearts were changed, because he was doing miracles. They just wanted the the food. Your first note, if you're taking notes, and if you don't have a note sheet, lift your hand, we'll, we'll pass them out to you. Your first note says, be sure that your focus is always on the giver rather than his gifts. And this still happens today. And yes, even for Christians, it happens today. At times, we might focus on the gifts rather than the giver of those gifts. There's an example from Ephesians chapter 4. Paul talks about gifts that Christ gave to the church. Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So when Christ ascended, he gave as gifts, and even before his life, back in the Old Testament, the apostles, the prophets, the people that wrote the Old Testament and those prophets, as gifts to the body of Christ, pastors, teachers, shepherds, evangelists, to get the word out, to shepherd God's people. Those are gifts from, God, from Christ. And we probably know people that seem to follow their favorite so-called apostle or prophet or pastor or teacher, or evangelist, even more so than they follow Christ himself. We probably know people like that. And we might have been someone like that. And maybe we're doing that right now. We have to be careful for that. We want to focus on the giver of those gifts. Because that favorite pastor you like, whether it be a local pastor on TV or teacher or whoever it is, if he's preaching the word of God, he's a gift from God. So go to the giver. He's doing God's work. Moses was doing God's work. We love Moses. But God sent Moses. Well, let's go to the source of Moses. Wouldn't you want to do that? Don't cut out the the giver. Some particular streams of Christianity have come to have bad reputations for doing this. And, you know, I think a lot of times Christians give God a bad name for for non-Christians. The way we act or or say we believe one thing and and we do something else, and the non-believers can see that and they say, what do I want this Christianity for? And they call us hypocrites and everything. We get bad reputations for doing these things, for chasing the gifts 
more than pursuing the giver. Others are, in the streams of different Christianity streams, are guilty of seeking after knowledge, how much can I know about the Bible, and they forget the heart of God, the Spirit of God, living out a Christian life. And they know all the, the Bible backwards and forwards, and, but it's all knowledge. It hasn't made that 12-inch journey to the heart. <clears throat> and so to emphasize anything over Christ, whether it be the gifts of the Spirit or the text of Scripture itself, to such an extent that the person of Jesus Christ becomes an afterthought, is by definition, what is it? Idolatry. You put anything above Christ, above God Almighty, that you're more concerned about, that's an idol. You've got to knock that down a couple, a couple rungs. <clears throat> definition of idol, American Heritage Dictionary. says, someone or something that is adored, often blindly or excessively, to the detriment of others. You're giving adoration blindly, you're not even thinking about it, or excessively, so much that you're leaving something else behind that shouldn't be left behind. So Jesus and his gospel are not at the forefront of ministries like this or of people's hearts and minds that are like this. If he's not at the forefront, by definition, something else is, that's an idol. Could be a sports team, you understand. Could be anything. And if you think about it, we can make anything an idol. And you know what? We're good at making idols. I believe it was John Calvin that said, the human heart is an idol factory. We're making idols all the time. We're making them up as we go. New TV shows, movies, whatever it might be, we make idols out of anything. We can make good things idols. We can make the gifts of the Spirit an idol. I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and I saw after a while, where's Jesus in all this? We forget about him? We can make theological education an idol. I need more degrees, more education. Over and over and over, I have to memorize everything. And you leave Jesus behind, the cross behind. What is salvation? Oh, I forgot. I haven't talked about Jesus for a long time. We can make following the law an idol. You do all the things, all the check marks. But where's the heart of Christ? Where's the forgiveness? Where's the compassion, the grace? We can make a pastor an idol. We talked about that. We can make seeking after prophecy an idol. Chasing after signs and wonders can be an idol. We can make Calvinism, Arminianism an idol. How you view the end times an idol. Are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? I probably said this before, but one of the professors from a long time ago said, a student said, what is the millennium? And he said, it's a thousand-year period of peace that Christians like to fight about. We can make these things come before Jesus. We can make our country an idol. USA, USA, right? We're not the only country in the world. And even in the countries that the U.S. has gone to war with in the past, there's Christians in those countries. So where do we draw those, those lines? Is our ultimate allegiance, as, we, as kids say, the, the Pledge of Allegiance, is it to the United States flag? Or is our allegiance to the King of Kings? ultimately. Now, we love our country. We just don't want to idolize our country or our pastor or any of these things. But we are, we have the proclivity to do that, naturally. We can make our children idols. It's all about the kids. We can make our spouse an idol. And on and on and on. You understand. Anything. It could be anything. Our car. And some of these things I dare say all of them are actually good things. All the things I mentioned, they're good. But if you emphasize them too much, especially if you emphasize them over Christ, they're idols, and they have to be secondary. All those things are secondary of secondary importance. And your next note says, All other pursuits should come after our pursuit of the person and work of Jesus Christ. All other pursuits. I don't think you could say anything. Well, now listen, this is really important. Say, is it most, more important than Jesus who gave you your salvation? You have to really honestly say, no, it's not. It's really not. Just as the crowd that followed Jesus across the sea for that free lunch, they were more concerned about receiving a meal, which was a gift from Jesus, rather than receiving Jesus himself and what he had to offer them. 
He had more to offer than bread. And he'll go on to explain this. They desired his gift above his person. His gift above himself. We continue in verse 27. Jesus is speaking now back to the crowd. He said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Don't work for the food that perishes. Okay, what's the food that perishes? What's any and all of the idols that we set before us? All those earthly pursuits that take the place of or distract us from Jesus Christ. We could probably all go around and make a little list in the back of our mind. Things we've got to kind of knock down the rung a little bit. It's taking too much time away from me, from my life, from my relationship with the Lord. Jesus says not to work for this food because it perishes. It fades away. I heard a pastor once say, at some point, we're all going to die and someone's going to get all your stuff. Don't work for all that stuff too much, but seek after that bread that sustains. Don't strive for those earthly things over God. Those fleshly pursuits. The selfish endeavors. It's all food that'll perish. I want to get higher social status. I want to get a new, whatever it might be, new toy, boat, whatever it might be. What does boat stand for, by the way? Anyone know? Bust out another thousand. It should give you more trouble. You want those earthly endeavors, you're just going to have the trouble that comes with them, which will also distract you from Jesus Christ. Just as food, uh, those things can't sustain you. Those things are all going to perish. You can't take those things with you. You can't take your status, all your beautiful cars and your home and everything else that you worked for that will perish. You can't take them with you. Those things can't sustain you. Why? Because you're always going to want another one, another car, different boat, different job, more money. Can't sustain you. It's all, like they say, empty calories. You have a can of soda. You like Coke Classic. It tastes really good, but it's empty calories. There's nothing there for you. No sustenance, no vitamins and all that. Eat a candy bar. It tastes good for a few minutes, but then it's just, there's nothing good for you in it that helps you along the way. Just as physical food does not sustain you more than a few hours, you always have to have more to survive or your body will die. So are earthly pursuits that we all seek for our own comfort and status, all those those things you need more of all the time. But by contrast, the food that endures to eternal life is given to us by the Son of Man. This is the spiritual food that sustains us forever. And it's interesting how the people say, we read from the communion time, we'll get to it in a minute, Sir, give us this bread always. And I think in their mind they thought, Oh, he has bread. I like bread. He's talking about this other bread. That sounds better. I want that bread, and I want him to always give it to me. So in their mind, I think they were thinking, once I get that bread, whatever he's talking about, I'm going to have to eat it three times a day, all the time. But the bread he was talking about sustains you forever. You are saved once. You don't need salvation. You don't get saved today, and you need to get saved in an hour, and then next week. And He says, you're saved, and we'll talk about that. So he's teaching them. They're getting closer. They're intrigued. What is he saying? And so understanding this, we have to ask ourselves the question, as we leave here today at some point, what are you striving for? Because we're all striving for something, and we could probably really tweak that a little bit, all of us, including me. We know I'm spending too much time with this thing or these three things, or you know, I haven't been reading my Bible. I haven't really been praying. I haven't talked to Jesus in really a while. I'll go through the motions, but it really, I really got to get that back to where it was because I can see I'm spending all my energy doing these other things on the periphery, and boy, I have troubles. It's just not working out. The lower expectations you have for something, the less you're going to be disappointed when it doesn't work out. But if you have the high expectations, I'm really trying to make this new job work out because I really want the higher Salary, because I want to get that new house, and all that's crumbling. Boy, I'm going to be really frustrated when it doesn't work out. But if we understand, this is secondary. Christ is first. He'll never let you down. We always have salvation in him. I don't have to worry about that when I put my faith in him. And I'm not as frustrated with life. Because I could say, you know what, this is not going to work out? Okay. That's not the most important thing in my life anyway. Jesus Christ is. 
But if you make those things the first thing, and this is the first thing, and Christ is way down here, when all those things fail, you're going to be a miserable person. Because you said to yourself, those are the most important things in my life. He wants you to have that peace, knowing I'm at the top, put your faith in me, everything else is secondary. So if that all crumbles, you still have me, and I still have you. That's all that really matters. We could be striving for larger bank accounts, increased creature comforts, all those things, but you know, you really don't find happiness for more than a little while in those things. You've all had a new car, or a new house, or something new. The shine wears off, it gets rusty. You know, things break down. And the bills that you have to repair things for, those aren't fun. Those don't give you joy. You always need more of that kind of bread. Your next note says, do not, be, do not work for things that will fade away, but for things, for that which endures to eternal life. All these things fade away. Even relationships fade away. How many people do you talk to from your high school graduating class at this point? Not many, probably. You probably had some really good relationships in college or high school or junior high, playing on the play- playground. Best friend ever. I haven't talked to the guy in 40 years. Those things fade away. In verse 28, the crowd responds to Jesus. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Isn't this always the question with people? Oh, there's that thing in my religion. What do I have to do to get that thing? It's about always something about what I need to do to reach God. I must have to do something. Well, I want to do something because then I'll feel good about myself and I can kind of walk around proud of myself. Well, Christianity is unique in that it's the only major world religion where it's upside down to the world. It's the only major world religion which is not based on human works for the way of salvation. Every other one, you know, to achieve nirvana in Buddhism, you have to go through all these different rites and different things. Or it's just, you could go down the line. It's all about how much are you doing? What are you doing? Are you putting your hours in? The people in this account ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That sounds like a lot of worky words. Do, do, and works, and works. Much like uh, the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? In Luke 18, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He went to Jesus. He had a a question. What must I do? Because I'm ready to do it. And it's interesting that in this case of the rich young ruler, Jesus answered in a pretty technical way. He gave him the law when he said, what must I do? Well, he says, well, if you want to know what you must do, I'll tell you what you need to do. Luke 18. Jesus tells him that he must keep the law if he desires to work for his own salvation. He says, you know the commandments. Jesus says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. He said, what do I need to do? Well, I'll tell you what you need to do. Follow the whole law. How are you doing? He says, I have so far. Anything left? He says, yeah, actually, sell everything you have. Well, that's not part of the law. But in James, brother Jesus, James 2 tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so when Jesus presented to him, the rich young ruler, his cross to bear, sell everything you have. He declined that. He declined that offer. That was his idol. He couldn't lay it down. It's not about doing more. It's not about working harder. It's not about being a good person. We've talked about that for about a month. It keeps coming up. That's not what saves you. The rich young ruler had to understand this. You can't save you. 
How can a sinful person save himself from being a sinful? It's who we are. The Bible says it's, it's our nature. We have a sin nature. We're always, you leave a little one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old by himself in his cookie jar there. You say, don't eat the cookies. Within about a minute, once you leave, he's got two cookies in his hands. He's going to do what he wants to do, and we want what we want, and we're selfish, and we're sinful by nature. We don't have to be taught to lie. Give us enough time, we're going to sin. It's our natural state before we come to Christ. The Bible calls us in, in Ephesians, a couple verses here, before we come to Christ, in our natural state. We're not saved in this example. The Bible calls us dead in sins, dead in our trespasses. So you ask, what can a dead man do? Can he pick himself up by his bootstraps and say, okay, wipe the dust off, now I'm holy. Now I'm ready for heaven. Where does that come from? We're blind to the gospel. We love darkness rather than light. Remember a while back we said this word rather here means we love darkness and not light. It's not like we love darkness more than light. We love darkness and not light. That's how we are in a natural state. We're like sheep, like Jesus looked over the crowd without a shepherd. That's a sad picture. You see multitudes out here in Lakeville or anywhere else we go that don't know Jesus. They're lost. They're looking for the truth. They don't know where to look. They're lost. How could they all of a sudden say, oh, now I know the truth and now I am righteous before God if they don't even know who he is, what his message is? That's why in Romans 10 we're told, how can they believe if no one tells them? <laughs> we have to go tell them. What does Scripture call people like this? It calls them lost. And we were once lost. And if you're lost, how can you draw a map back home? You don't know where you are. You might even know where you live. Yeah, I got the address. It's in my head. I don't know where I am right now. You're in the big mall. They got to have a sign to show you where you are. You are here. Thank you. I know I'm here, but I don't know where here is. How do I get home? How do I, how do I be saved? You're lost. You can't write your way home. You can't. You need help when you're lost. And because of man's sinful nature, our human condition is so corrupted by sin that we could never set ourselves right. It, it can't come from within us. We could try as hard as we can and, and do all the laws, and, and it's not enough. We could never set ourselves right without God's intervention. And God loved us enough that he intervened. And as we'll learn next week, unless the Father draws us, we would never come to Jesus. Unless he draws us in, we'd never come. First of all, we wouldn't know where to look. Second of all, our hearts wouldn't be pierced from, for the gospel to say, yeah, I need that. I'm lost. I don't know where to go. Surely we have the free will to do whatever we desire at any moment. But just because we desire to go home when we're lost without Christ, it doesn't mean we have the ability to go home. Yeah, I want to be saved. A lost person might say, I want salvation. They might not even know what salvation is. I want to be saved. I want peace with God, they might say. They don't know who God is. So just because you have the desire to be saved, whatever that might be in your mind before Christ, doesn't mean you have the ability to be saved. You still need Jesus. We need Jesus to show us the way home, if we're using that analogy of lost as being away from home. We need his help to show us the way of salvation. And what does the Bible say? He seeks and saves the lost. He seeks us out. He finds us. He goes after the lost sheep. He said he was called to the lost sheep of Israel, of the house of Israel. And when he finds us, he saves us. And he brings us home. He finds us. He saves us. And he's the one that brings us home. Because the rich young ruler thought, well, I did that. I saved myself. And I, you know, I did all the work. And so now I'm getting myself there. Jesus said, no, you're not. Your next note says, we receive salvation from God by surrendering ourselves to Christ through faith. It's a simple gospel. We have to understand we're not doing this. 
we're not saving ourselves. You can't save you. A sinful person can't make themselves not sinful. Even if you start, you say, okay, now I'm going to make myself not sinful. Well, you've already been sinful. You're already imperfect. We need help outside of us. In order to live eternally, it's about repenting from your sins and putting your trust in Jesus to come rescue you and show you the way home to him. I don't know if any of you have been stranded anywhere or lost, actually really lost, where you were worried about your life. But I'm sure in those circumstances, people, once they see that plane coming in or that boat on the horizon or some headlights or something, they think, thank you, Jesus. I was so lost, I thought I'd never be found. Well, in a Christian's life, they look back before they were found by Christ. You're just like that person who's stranded. I don't even know which way is up, which way is down, where to go. I don't even know who to ask, who to trust. Thank God he found us somehow. And he pulls us in. It might have been through a friend. Say, will you come to church with me this weekend? Or at the picnic at the park. And you heard something about Jesus and you were intrigued. Like those cro- that crowd. What is that again? Tell me about this bread. It sounds like I might want that. And he saves us. But we can't take credit for doing that. He rescues us. In his answer, he gave the rich young ruler what the law requires. Perfect obedience. That's what he asked for. What do I have to do? I've got to tell you. Perfectly obey the law. But the crowd in John 6 got the gospel from Jesus. When they asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Believe in me. You might not break a sweat doing that. I just have to believe in you? Believe that you say you are who you say you are? Believe your promise to save me? Sure, he says, you want to do something so badly, do that. Believe in me. The crowd replied again in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. See these people again, they're coming closer, they're getting closer, but they're still not quite there. They want to see more signs. Okay, so that's how it is. You want us to believe in you. Okay, show us that thing again you did with the bread. Or do something different. I want to see something, so then we'll really believe you. And this happens a few different times in the New Testament. One time is in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus told the Pharisees who were asking him, show us another sign to really prove that you're who you say you are. He said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. That's all you want is a sign. And that proves who you are in your heart. You don't want me. You want all this other stuff. It really doesn't matter. They're not there for Jesus. They're there for the blessings from Jesus. Well, yeah, I want blessings and I want, like they say, prosperity and health and wealth and all these things. Those are the blessings if he's willing, if it's his will to give you those things, those are blessings. We love the blessings. We want the blessings. Well, come know me. See who I am. Know my heart, Jesus says. Well, hold on a second. I still, I need this prosperity and all these good things. I'll get to you in a minute. I'm, I'm just over here wallowing in the blessing. I'm striving for that. And Jesus says, it's not about that. It's about me. Him. Follow me. If you want to work for something, here's your work. Believe in me. Verse 31, Jesus replies, again, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He's clarifying this. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's explaining, it wasn't Moses, it was my father. And now he's about to give you living bread. People tell Jesus, well, our father has received bread from heaven. They're talking about the Israelites after the Exodus. They wandered for 40 years in the desert. Well, they got manna from heaven, bread from heaven every single day. God sustained them. They were speaking as if Moses was doing that. Jesus said, no, it wasn't Moses, it was my father. Surely the bread came through Moses. God used Moses as that conduit to bless his people. But again, the source goes one step higher than Moses, God. They were focused on the gift 
and not the source. Your next note says, the manna from heaven was a foreshadowing of Jesus, the true bread from heaven. You think the story is in there just because it's a cool story, and it's not. It's a foreshadow. For When Christ came, he says, remember that manna from heaven that my Father gave to you every day and it sustained you every day? You never had to worry about if it would be there. He was faithful to bring it every day. I'm that manna from heaven, but I bring a bigger blessing, eternal life. That manna could get you through one day. I can get you through eternity. And they were making these connections in their minds, the ones that knew their word. God provided that daily bread in the wilderness as sustenance. And in the fullest sense, it's what he does in his son, Jesus. The Father sends his son, Jesus Christ, as the true bread from heaven that will sustain forever, not just for a day. And so the crowd responds. Verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. It sounds really good. We like that bread that you gave us on the other side of the sea. That was good. But this bread sounds even better. Give us this bread too. I think in their minds they were thinking, okay, this is better bread. I really want that, but again, for what reason? Because it's going to taste better than the other bread? It's interesting how Jesus has to repeat and drill down and come from different angles, use different perspectives to get the message across. Because these people were under the, the temple system for so many years, it was ingrained in their heads about, I have to work, I have to do the sacrifices. He's saying, I have now come and take on your sin, and by God's grace, which you don't deserve, you will live forever. Believe in me. You want to do some work? Believe me. That's what you got to do. It's a much lighter burden. So Jesus continues then to teach them. In verse 35, he said to them, I am the bread of life. He comes out and finally says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoa, what? I won't hunger. It's their attention. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus was saying, you want bread? You want the better bread? Okay, here's the better bread. It's me. They were like, well, we like the, the other bread too, and so maybe can you do more of that bread? They still didn't get it. He said, I'm the bread of life. Come to me, you won't be hungry anymore. He's speaking in the spiritual terms. You won't hunger for anything. You won't care if you get that new house or, house or not, or the new job or the car. You'll have me, and you, that'll satisfy you. You'll never thirst again for anymore. Thirst for unrighteous things, fleshly things. You won't be yearning for those things anymore if you have me. But he told him, but you've seen me and you don't believe. You don't want that. You want what fills your physical body. And we need to, we need to understand there's more than just the physical body, the physical earth around us. There's spiritual truths that are eternal truths. And Christ will satisfy those hungers and those thirsts forever. Your next note says, beware of confusing your proximity to Christ with your salvation in Christ. I'm going to repeat that one. Beware of, your, of confusing your proximity to Christ with your salvation in Christ. Just because you're close to Jesus, in, because you go to a church, because you're close to the gospel, because you've heard the gospel a million times, you have lots of Christian friends and your whole family's Christian, and you go there Christmas and Easter and, and a few times in between, and uh, you, you even pray before you eat and you give to the offering. You're close to Jesus somehow, to his message. That doesn't mean you're saved. You may have lots of Christian friends. I'm close to all these people. I know all the Ten Commandments. I even follow most of them. Doesn't mean you're saved. You can be like Judas. How close was he to Christ? Three and a half years. I wonder if he confused his proximity to Christ with his salvation in Christ. You can be really close to Jesus and not be in Christ. You can be really close. Look at Judas. And not be in Christ. 
And Peter tells us that we should test our faith to make sure we're in the faith. Examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. Am I really a believer? Or am I just going through the motions for the last 15 years? Life has gone so fast. <laughs> Do I even really know Jesus in his gospel? Could I recite the gospel to my neighbor if he asked me what it was? How am I saved? What do I even believe? Don't confuse your proximity to Christ with your salvation in Christ. And this is for all of us. These people were very proximate to Christ. They saw him do miracles. They heard his teaching. On both sides of the sea, they had encountered this bread from heaven. They spoke with him. But all they really wanted was that earthly bread. Even after that. I don't need all this spiritual stuff. I don't care about what happens when I die in 100 years or, or whatever it might be. I just want to eat today. That kind of food perishes. It doesn't last. That kind of food spoils. It rots away. And as Jesus continues, he gives the people a beautiful encapsulation of salvation in the next four verses. And verse 37 begins. He says, All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus tells us here, out of his mouth, the Father gives people to the Son. Number one. Number two, all those people will come to him. And number three, they will never be cast out. Those are blessings to hear. Amen? The Father gives certain people to the Son. All those people will come to the Son, and Christ will never let them go. That takes the edge off me to say, well, maybe I'll lose what Christ gave me. Well, did you earn it to begin with? No, you didn't. The rich young ruler couldn't earn it. How could we? After the rich young ruler story, the Bible, or the Bible says that the disciples said, goodness, if this guy can't be saved, how, how can anybody be saved? What did Christ say? With man, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Because it doesn't rely on you and how good you are at following his rules. Now, again, we love the law of God. We want to be like God because that's his standard for us is his laws. He knows we can't fulfill all that. So he sent Christ to fulfill them for us. Like I said last week, Christ didn't just die for us. He lived for us. The life we couldn't live. He fulfilled the law, achieved the law, and he says, I want you to have this now. Believe in me. That's your work. Believe in me. I'll take your sin. You take my perfection. It's a good deal for us. All the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Praise God. And Jesus teaches in other places in Scripture on this doctrine, which some have called irresistible grace, or they've called it the effectual call of God. We talked about this in, on last Tuesday in Romans. The call that has the effect of, of saving you, in contrast to the, an external call or a general call that you might see at a park and when there's a, a gospel message being preached to 100 people. The message goes out in a general way. It's an external call, but they don't all believe but those who do believe experience that effectual call, that gospel takes effect in their hearts. That's the one I'm talking about here. The example from John 10 says, and it's similar to the passage for today where the Jews are talking to him saying, oh, do something else for us. Show us something else. We just want to make sure you're saying who you are. Do another sign. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Again, they want a sign. Show us, really show us. Do something. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe. Here it is. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. That's why you don't believe. You're not among my sheep. You hear the gospel, but you don't obey it. You hear the gospel, but you don't repent from your sin, turn from it, and believe. The next verse says, My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. When they hear my voice, they recognize, that's my shepherd. I've been lost, but I hear my shepherd's voice, and I'm going to follow him. Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. That's why. 
And later he calls them the father of their father, the devil. Verse 28, Jesus goes on in John 10. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. This is our Lord talking. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus said that the people whom the Father gave to the Son will all come to him. They receive that general call of salvation that everyone receives. And his lost sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd and they respond. And they come to him. They all come to him. But those who are not among his sheep receive the general call, the gospel message. They hear it. Yeah, I'm close to it. Like Judas. I know Jesus. I know him. I I, kind of travel around with him. But those who are not among his sheep hear that message. How many times did Judas hear the gospel? And then they don't believe and they don't come to him. Back to John chapter 6, Jesus continues. Verse 38, teaching the people, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Here it is. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's talking about you and me. If we're believers, the will of the Father is that I should lose none of all that he has given me. I'll keep them safe in me, and I'll raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We don't want to read Scripture too fast. And I know sometimes I talk too fast, but you've got to listen fast. This is an important verse. Like, they're all not important, right? For this is the will of my Father. Again, this is Jesus Christ, our Lord, teaching, speaking. We say we're Christian. We we believe his words, right? This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Jesus tells the people, he's been sent by by the Father. He's the bread of life. And the Father's will is that everyone should be saved. That's not what he said. He said the Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son should be saved. That's not what he said. Jesus Christ said these words. The Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes shall be saved. Judas looked upon the Son for years, slept in the same room with him. But he didn't believe and the Bible tells us he was not saved. The Bible tells us it would have been better that he had never been born. But those who look on the Son and believe will be saved and will be raised to eternal life on the last day. And your last note says, knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. You know about Jesus all day long. You can know all about all the stats of your favorite sports team. Well, you don't know the quarterback. He doesn't know you exist. Well, no, I know all the Vikings. How, how do you mean you know? I can name them all. Do they even know you exist? No. You don't know them. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Are you one of those who have looked upon the Son, Jesus Christ, and believed? I hope so. Or are you one of those who have looked upon the Son, Jesus Christ, but have not believed. Maybe you've looked upon the Son for 25 years and you feel comfortable as close as you are right now with Him. But you really don't believe. You believe it's got something to do with you still. Have you received that general or external call of of salvation in Christ? You've heard the gospel, you've been near, you've been to church a thousand times, given in the offering, but you've not obeyed it? You've not obeyed that gospel? Have you not surrendered yourself to it? Do you still remain the king of your life? It comes down to it. Really, it's about what I'm going to do. I'm not even going to check with God on this one because I know what he's going to say. I'll just do what I want to do. 
Or have you surrendered yourself? Self's a big one. And I like to put that space between, we say, yourself. Have you surrendered yourself? Because that's a big deal. Your pride. Surrender your pride. Surrender your plans. We have lots of plans. To the king of kings. Not the, the king of me, if it's me. I got to center all those things. Surrender to the king of kings. My judge on judgment day. This is what the, that effectual call will do. It'll have an effect in your life, and you will lay down yourself, your plans, your pride, your job, whatever it might be, and say, I'm surrendering to you, Jesus. You're the king, not me. If we do this, it'll be plainly evident for people around us. They'll see what we're doing, so much so that they'll see the, the effects of the gospel in our lives. They'll see that our pursuits are not centered on ourselves, but on the Lord Jesus Christ and his people above us, above myself. They'll see it. Because we can, by the same token, see when others are focused on themselves. Can't we see that? Our desires and motivations will change. They won't be so much for those earthly blessings, and we can go without a few more times with, without those earthly blessings or with the creature comforts. We can let it slide. So, you know, once we're in Christ, you know what? That used to be important, but now it's not as much. I'm going to focus on what Christ wants me to focus on. My marriage, my family, my kids, my relationship with this person who's lost or something else where God wants you to be. And when we come to him, we leave that old person we used to be, we leave them behind to die. And sometimes he tries to come up again and we say, I don't want to be that person anymore. I'm not that person anymore. That old person is dead in Christ. We're a new creation. We place our trust in his righteousness alone to save us. I'm going to say that again. We place our trust in his righteousness alone to save us. The rich young ruler placed a lot of trust in his own righteousness to save him. Jesus said, here's the laws. He says, I did it. I did it. But we have to place our full and complete trust in his righteousness to save us. Not mine. Not yours. It'll never be enough. It could never be enough. By our works or duties that can only give us boast, uh, reason to boast in ourselves, we can't add anything to the salvation Christ has given to us. How could you add anything to that? And as we're told about how we're saved in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, again, famous verse, Paul tells us, here's how we're saved. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. You can't boast about it. God gets all the glory in our salvation. There's none left over for us. God gets all the glory in our staying saved. We don't hold on to, we don't keep or retain or maintain our salvation. Did you know that? Because we can't. Because if, if it were on us, we'd lose it every, every minute of every day. But God does that. God holds on to you. Some of us think, I'm holding on to God by dear life. Well, that's backwards. He's holding on to you. You're in his hand. And he says, I will let you, never let you go out of my hand. Don't you find peace in that? Comfort? Thank God it doesn't depend on me screwing it up because I'm going to. By the same token, if we could maintain our salvation, first of all, we could boast about that. We could say, boy, I'm holding it together better than Bob over here. Are there any Bobs in here? I don't mean any... <laughs> I'm holding it together better than him. Boy, I'm, I must be pretty good. No, nope. we could boast about that. And he, he said there's no room for boasting. All the glory is to him. 
Again, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. First line there. Well, what does that mean? Speak English here. We've obtained an inheritance. It means we've been saved. Our inheritance is salvation. We've obtained it. That sounds like it's past tense. And it's in him, Christ. In him we have obtained an inheritance. How? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. It's a long way of saying, having been predestined according to God's will. So that, who were the first to hope in Christ, that's the Jews, might be to praise of his glory. In him also, now he turns to the Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, Gentiles, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, here it is, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, that salvation, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is all saying salvation doesn't count on you, either at the beginning, during, or at the end. Praise God, it's all God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In Jonah, we're told that. In other places, we have this idea. I don't know where it came from, except our sinful natures, that it's really got a lot to do with me. I really have to meet the marks and do all the things and what are we told in Isaiah? All of our righteous works that we call righteous, we lay them before his throne, he says they're filthy rags. And I think I've mentioned this before. I'm going to go there again today. In Hebrew, we clean it up in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, the word for filthy rags is menstrual rags. Isaiah says, this is filth. Get it out of here. You think that's righteous? And sometimes I talk about how much we think we're impressing God because I'm doing all these righteous things. He's not impressed with you or me. He says, you are lost. You're wretched. You're sons of wrath. We're enemies of God. We're dead in our trespasses. We have nothing to bring but our sin. And he says, that's enough. You believe in me. I'll take care of that for you. And I don't need your help. I'll put it to you this way before we close. On Judgment Day, we're told in John 5, last chapter we looked at, Christ is the judge of all people, not just Christians, not just the world. He's the judge of all. Everyone on Judgment Day, we give an account for our lives. We'll all be judged by the righteousness that we present before him in God's court, you could say. He's the judge. We're on trial. Whoever's found righteous and innocent is given eternal life. Whoever's found unrighteous, we might say found guilty, is delivered to eternal punishment. Those who are not in Christ through faith... Present their own works. Those who are in Christ, in faith, present the works of Christ. So you either are depending on your righteous works. We just talked about how Isaiah views that. You're dependent on those righteous works, quote-unquote, to acquit you or the works of Christ. Which one would you rather have? We can't boast in our righteous works ever. They're never enough. They could never be enough. They're like food that perishes. When you're there on Judgment Day, are you going to bring your life, your righteous works, and say, here you go, Jesus, here's all I did. I don't believe in you, but here's, I was a really good person, and I obeyed all the commandments. He says, I never knew you. Who are you? Depart from me. Of, of those who us, of us who believe in Christ. We're in Christ. Paul uses that, that term, I think it's the majority of times when he refers to salvation, to be in Christ. If you're in Christ, on Judgment Day, you present Christ's works. 
God sees us through Christ's righteousness, that, that white robe of righteousness. He doesn't see our sin. He, he separates it from, as far as the east is from the west. He sees Christ's righteousness when we're in Christ because we're in Christ. Not ours. Christ took care of that on the cross. So we rely on the works of Christ. We say, you know, we're not saved by works. Actually, you know what? We're all saved by works, just not yours, Jesus's. Amen? We're saved by God's grace alone when we believe. In the words of the 16th century church father, Philip Melanchthon, he worked with Martin Luther, he said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. You want to take credit for anything? There you go. So, friends, we believe that it is God that secures and guarantees our salvation. We're just told in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit seals you until the day of redemption, and He guarantees your inheritance. He guarantees your salvation. You can't get your money back if you wanted to. It's guaranteed. It's done. It's finished. And it's in the past tense. We've obtained it in Christ. He's the one that gets us to the ultimate promised land. And we only boast in him, not in me. I have nothing to bring. Earthly bread can't do that. Your career path can't do that. Your good deeds can't save you. It can just make you proud. What does God think about pride? Stop pursuing that bread. The bread that perishes, it'll only lead to your perishing. The bread of life is what we should pursue. Above all things, the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, above all else. Now this was a new teaching and a new message for these people, the crowd that was following him. It was new. They probably heard it for the first time that day, and perhaps it's a new message to you today. This is the Word of God. We say we're Christians. We say we believe Jesus. We believe the Word of God is true. The Bible is true. And so we believe His words. We're beholden to the Word of God. I've had a lot of opinions about life. I have a lot of opinions about myself, about how reality is. But I have to lay all those opinions down if the Word of God goes against my opinions. I have to. I'm not above the Word of God. None of us are. If we believe Jesus, we'll believe his words. And we'll show as evidence that we are his sheep. And we hear our shepherd's voice. We recognize it. We go to him. He's our shepherd. His words comfort us. They take the weight off our shoulders. Stop trying to earn all that stuff and strive over those things. You don't need it. It's going to only hurt you. Don't think it depends on you. It's all about Christ. The weight's off our shoulders, and we should say, thank you, Jesus. I don't need that weight. I can't save myself anyway. I can't find my way back home anyway if I'm lost. I need your help. And we rest in his finished work. As Christians, we rest now. He is our Sabbath rest. He's done the work. I, I can't add to what he's done. I can't make it better. I can't sustain it or keep it or maintain what he's done. I rest now in what he's done. And we rely on him alone as our daily bread until we see him again in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught us how to pray. And he said, give us this day our daily bread. We need him daily, we do. But if we talk about salvation as bread, that's a one-time thing. You come to me, I'll sustain you forever. We rely on him until we see him again. He's our blessed hope. And that's why no matter how bad our troubles are, how deep our wounds are, there's a lot going on in the world today. There's a lot going on in this church today. No matter how difficult those earthly troubles are, we can always still say, as Christians, that truly, truly, the best is yet to come because he's our blessed hope. Amen? Amen. Please stand with me together as we pray. Dear Lord Jesus, as we close this service today, I pray that you 
show us that there are things more important than what we think are important. Lord, we want your blessings. But also I pray that you show us that sometimes what we view as not a blessing is a blessing to us. Now in James it says that we're supposed to count it all joy when we go through trials and tribulations. Lord, help us to understand what that means. You give us these things to go through so that we can grow and learn. And our faith can be strengthened. Help us to understand that I, I have nothing to offer you. Help us to understand that we have nothing to impress you. We're here by your mercy alone. And I pray that as we go this week, that your truth shines boldly, boldly and brightly within our hearts and that it spreads. And I pray that the people who need to hear a message from you hear it through the people in this room today. The truth, the gospel, give us boldness. Give us eyes to see those opportunities as we go forward today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a note, we do have...